Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us on today's Ask the Expert webinar, a look at consecutively treated Class II non-extraction patients using Invisalign with Dr. Sam Dar. You will earn two CE hours for attending today's program, and you will receive important instructions on how to obtain your CE certificates at the conclusion of the presentation. Additionally, CE hours will automatically be added to your Invisalign doctor's site account. Please allow two to four weeks for CE hours to appear on your account. Please note you're able to listen to today's program via the webcast. And throughout the webinar, you'll have the opportunity to ask text questions, which our presenter will answer at the conclusion of the presentation. I apologize in advance if we're unable to answer everyone's questions since our time is limited. But we will follow up after the program to answer any outstanding text questions. Today's program will be archived in its entirety one week from today at alignetechinstitute.com, where you may also access archived versions of all of our previous Ask the Expert programs anytime for C hours. It's now my distinct pleasure to introduce today's speaker, Dr. Sam Dar. Dr. Sam Dar reached the level of Invisalign elite provider in 2007 and has been treating Invisalign patients in his Vancouver, B.C. practice since 2000. He is British Columbia's first elite premier provider with, uh, and a bilingual native of Montreal. Dr. Dar is a member of the American and Canadian Association of Orthodontists and a fellow of the World Federation of Orthodontists. He received his DDS from McGill University with distinction in 1994 and a master's degree with specialty in orthodontics from the University de Montreal, where he also taught undergraduate orthodontics. I would also like to mention that today is Dr. Dar's birthday. So without further ado, I'll turn the program over to Dr. Dar. Dr. Dar, happy birthday, and you now have the floor. Thank you, David. Good morning, everyone, or good afternoon. Uh, grand bonjour à mes collègues à Montréal et au Québec. So I just wanted to start off uh, by letting you know that these statements, views, and opinions expressed are, are related, of uh, course, material, those of the speaker, which is mine. So um, this study, uh, the class two study on treatment of class two, um, was authorized by myself, and I wanted to share the outcome with everyone on the line today. Uh, I'm originally from Montreal. I, I did my dentistry at McGill and my specialty at Université de Montréal. Uh, I'm currently an adjunct associate professor at the University of San Francisco, and I enjoy that quite a bit. And I've treated a little over 2,200 cases, which means I made a lot more mistakes than almost anyone on the line today. Um, just the outline on today's uh, webinar, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll do a little bit of review of literature. I'll, I'll, show, I'll share with you the literature that we looked at, um, and then the clinical study of the protocol, uh, the mechanics that I've used, and we look, we will look at some sample patients. Um, we'll look at a treatment of one teen patient with Invisalign, and I do that uh, a bit differently than I do with non-growing adults. And then at the end, I'll share with you some of my protocol um, conclusions and maybe some tips of some of the things that I do that I find have helped me in the past with class two correction. Looking at the uh, literature review, uh, we wanted to look at basically distalization in general, and we wanted to look maybe closer at the effects of class two elastics. Um, and as you can see from the conclusion, uh, class two elastics can be effectively used with fixed appliances in the correction of class two malocclusion. Um, in growing patients, obviously we, uh, molar correction is mostly attributed to mandibular growth. Some of it was distalization, uh, a big part of it was mandibular growth as well. Molar correction with, with fixed appliances and elastics varied from 1.9 to 3.2 millimeters, uh, a big part of which was due to mandibular growth. Um, and what we wanted to look at was the uh, documented side effects, whether they were desirable or not. There's a vertical force factor, obviously, that can extrude the mandibular molars and in non-growing adults that can cause to mandibular rotation, clockwise rotation, um, and there's a horizontal force vector, obviously, that can lead to proclination of the lower incisors and maybe even tipping of the molars. So all that is well documented in the literature, but we wanted to see the effects of the class two elastics as well on uh, Invisalign patients. So can Invisalign effectively and efficiently correct class two malocclusions? And, and this study basically was born uh, from the fact that I've, I've treated many hundreds of patients with, with Invisalign, class two correction with Invisalign, and I've been having good results, really good results over the years. And I wanted to maybe take it uh, a step further and see what 
can how can we make it evidence based what can we look at what can we trace what can we see happening uh, with the class two so it would have been a little bit more than sort of he said or she said or in my hands I do this and and this has worked so we wanted to stand I wanted to standardize it a little bit more so we looked at Invisalign and Elastics with no other auxiliaries. We, we didn't use any, we didn't use TADs, we didn't use minus screws, we didn't use anything else. Uh, it was, we found out that the average treatment time was 19 months. Um, class two was effectively corrected. There was no increase on lower facial height. Uh, basically, that we wanted to look at the vertical effect of the Elastics, and there was no or little unintended proclination of the lower incisors despite the use of class two elastics. Um, this is a quick summary, but let's look at this in a little bit more detail. So the purpose of the study was to examine the results um, and look at them closely, uh, trace CEPHs, uh, and, and look at some of the tracing numbers. Uh, it was a retrospective CEPH and photo analysis of 14 consecutively finished class two patients. Um, because I wanted to get bias out of there, I had a line technology go in, not knowing what the end result looked like, just look at ClinChecks and look at 14 consecutively finished patients, uh, class two patients that were treated with Invisalign. Um, so regardless of what the outcome was, and the CEPHs were all traced, initial and final CEPHs were all traced by an independent third party. So again, just to get bias out of it as much as possible. Um, now, the subjects, we had 14 adult, non-growing, non-surgical patients who had no extractions. They all had a full complement of adult teeth, uh, so there was no missing teeth, there was no agenesis. The mean start age at the beginning of treatment was 32. Uh, the range varied from 24 to 54 year old. We had, uh, out of the 14 patients, we had 11 end-on, and we had three full-cusp class two. All of that was based on the molar relationship. We had six class two div one and eight class two division two patients. Uh, 12 of those out of the 14 patients had a bilateral class two, and two of those patients were unilateral class two. Now the protocol, these patients had all the same protocol, was Invisalign and class two elastics only. At no point did we use fixed appliances, fixed braces, or any, or any other distalizing appliance, be it fixed or removable, other than Invisalign and elastics. Distalization of maxillary molars happened one at a time. In other words, sequential distalization um, and class two elastics were worn on average 21 hours a day, uh, basically the same uh, number of hours that a patient would wear aligners, and that started at aligner eight. Uh, basically, aligner one and two will be uh, using the aligners with no attachments and no elastics. Usually, aligners three through seven, uh, those five aligners attachments would have been added at aligner three, uh, get patient used to the aligners and the attachments, and as of aligner eight, uh, we'll start the class two elastics. Uh, those elastics would usually stay on until the canines were distalized into a class one. Um, extraction of the upper third molars um, were also occurred just before inserting the first set of aligners. Uh, what I would normally do is take my scan, uh, send the, send the, uh, the uh, records and get the ClinCheck set up modify it, have it to my liking. Once I accept the ClinCheck, um, I'll have the patient have the, third, the upper third molars extracted just to allow some more space and a little less resistance for the upper sevens to distalize into the, into the tuberosity area. Expansion was uh, prescribed and molar rotation, usually rotation mesial out rotation uh, of the upper sixes along the palatal route and we'll discuss that uh, a little bit further. Um, and all were treated in the same office, in my office, by the same clinician. Um, I have no associates working for me, so the treatment plan was all devised by myself. Now, in terms of uh, radiographic analysis, I requested the Steiner analysis, a full Steiner analysis. 
this is the analysis I normally would use for my patients. And the other thing is, since it was a third party analyzing uh, the, the uh, uh, tracing, I wanted bias to be out of it completely. I didn't want uh, the company that traced the steps for me to know what is it I was looking for exactly. Uh, the second thing we looked at was molar relation. And uh, the last tracing, we had the last number we looked at was the upper sixes to the pterygoid vertical, and that was taken, that was the only measurement that was taken from the Ricketts analysis, and I thought in this case would have been quite helpful. So just to describe the molar relation, um, the molar relation was defined as the distance between the distal surfaces of the lower and upper first molars measured along the occlusal plane. And we wanted to measure in an ideal world, I would have loved to have measured that distance from the second molars as opposed to the first molars. But I wanted to keep it standardized and since the molar relation um, exists based on the first molars, I wanted to keep that measurement as is. So as you can see here, um, we got, we got um, a line measuring the distance is being measured from the distal of the lowers to the distal of the upper sixes. Um, and in a class one relationship, that distance should be minus three millimeter going in the negative direction towards the left. Class two will be um, zero or a positive number basically, whereby the lower sixes will be a little further back distally. And the clinical deviation was plus three millimeter. And lastly, the upper sixes to the pterygoid vertical. Uh, that's a straightforward uh, pterygoid vertical goes through the pterygoid fissure, and it goes, uh, and it is perpendicular to the Frankfurt, <clears throat> Frankfurt horizontal plane. Uh, and that was quite the helpful uh, measurements, obviously. Now, let's look at the findings. We looked at, at other measurements, obviously. We looked at over, uh, at over jet as well. We looked at the proclination of the lower incisors. Um, the, the main measurements that we wanted to look at was obviously uh, the distalization. Granted, this was a class two study, and the class two correction occurred uh, because of the distalization, but also because of the proclination, some of the proclination of the lower dental alveolar complex as well. Now, looking at the findings and the vertical dimension, um, we find that despite the use of class two elastics, there was little change in mandibular plane angle and lower facial height. Again, whether this is desirable or not um, is, you know, that depends on the patient, but generally the class two elastics, the vertical component of the class two elastics did not lead to extrusion of the lower sixes, obviously, and that which would really mean uh, increasing FMA due to the rotation of the mandible clockwise. And in this case, we noticed that the mean change was minus 0.3, almost non-existent. Um, same thing for occlusal plane to SN angle and GOGN SN angle. All of these were very close to zero. Now, looking at what took place with the maxillary molars, which was the main focus of the study, um, we noticed that every single patient, we were able to measure distalization on every patient out of the 14 patients that were studied. And the range of measured distalization varied from 0.01 to 2.5 millimeter. Um, in other words, measuring the, the, the first molars, upper and lower first molars, um, we, we noticed that in the upper molars have distalized anywhere from 0.1 to 2.5 millimeter. Uh, the, the mean change was a little over a millimeter, um, as you can see in here, but the range varied up to 2.5 millimeter. In terms of uh, molar relation, now the molar relation, the, the mean change was a little bit higher uh, as minus 1.3, and the range varied from 0.6 to minus, uh, to, sorry, minus 0.6 to minus 3. Um, now, this is a little bit higher than the distance that we measured previously compared to the pterygoid uh, vertical, and the re reason for that is this actually measures a combination of the distalization of the upper sixes 
but also some of the protraction or mesialization of the lower sexes. So you can uh, appreciate how the difference will be slightly higher, and that is due to the proclination or the mesialization of the lower six. As at this, we, at this point, we're measuring the relationship between the upper and the lower molars, which are really uh, two moving targets at this point. And now these numbers, uh, minus, uh, minus 0.6 and minus 3, these are uh, radiographic distalization. Obviously, these are measured um, along a two-dimensional CEPH. Um, when we distalize, the arch actually is, is, is an arch form, and distalization is not directly, uh, it's not along a straight line. It goes along a curve. So you can appreciate that the actual number in the patient's mouth might be a little bit higher than that. But the point really was to measure the patient's uh, CEPH pre-treatment and post-treatment um, and measure the distalization on a CEPH, knowing quite well that clinically that number would most likely be slightly higher. Now, looking at what took place uh, in terms of changes in the mandibular dentition, uh, some lower dental alveolar protraction was noted where prescribed. So in the ClinCheck, and uh, if I wanted to protract or procline the lower anteriors, for instance, in a class two, diff two case, uh, whereby I find I can do some of the correction uh, with distalization in the upper arch, but I can afford to protract those lower anteriors on a patient that would not wanna have surgery and where growth cannot be a factor. Obviously, I wanted to protract some of the lower anteriors whenever I can, and whenever that was prescribed into the ClinCheck, we actually obtained that protraction. However, in a, for instance, in a class two, Div one cases where those lower anteriors could not afford to move forward, or I didn't think it would have been um, a wise idea to protract them, um, and looking at the gingiva, looking at the uh, periodontium, and I wanted to avoid fenestration of the buccal plate um, in the lower dental alveolar complex, I would obviously refrain from protracting the lower anteriors. Um, having uh, no worries that the elastics are going to cause any protraction. And that was measured, and we were able to notice that whenever the protraction was not prescribed, um, it did not occur. So basically, the lower aligner has done a good job splinting the lower arch uh, and preventing protraction of the lower incisors uh, in particular. Now, um, what, let's look at some of the changes that have occurred um, with the upper and lower incisors. So even with the extended elastic wear, little to no proclination of the lower incisors occurred. Um, po positive overjet reduction um, was obviously measured as well, and we had favorable inter-incisal angle change for both Division I and Division II. Um, so if we look at... Um, right here, the overjet uh, in both Div 1 and Div 2. Um, in, Div in Division 1, that has decreased about two millimeters on average. Um, and in Division 2, that remained close to zero, which is very good considering the upper, upper central incisors are tipped in lingually. And so the overjet in uh, Div 2 patients, um, it usually is not a chief complaint to the patient nor is it to the dentist but, or to the orthodontist. But as we procline the upper incisors, uh, we want to make sure that it's a root torquing movement and we're not exacerbating, we're not exaggerating the overjet. And we managed to maintain it very close to zero or 0 0.3 millimeter, the overjet in, division, in class two, division two patients. And that was very important uh, for us to maintain that. Um, and interincisal angle, again, that varies between Division One and Division Two. In Division One, that change was positive. Um, 11, uh, we had um, 11 degrees, uh, but in, in Class Two, Division Two, that number was a negative number, and again, which is desirable as we're upriding the upper incisors. So looking, looking at the uh, interincisal angle and looking at the overchat, uh, both Division One and Division Two, we had favorable changes, and we had very decent mean changes uh, for both patients, groups of patients. 
Now, as a summary, as a treatment summary, we had 14 patients in total. Um, average treatment time was 19 months. The average number of initial aligners, we had 33 active upper aligners and 23 active lower aligners. Uh, we did not include passive aligners, obviously, in the lower arch. Uh, so 33 uppers, 23 lowers in the initial uh, clincheck. Now, we had to do, on average, we had to do 1.3 refinements. Uh, for our 14 patients, and the average number of refinement aligners was 11 upper and 10 lower. Uh, again, we're counting active aligners only at this point. Uh, what I normally do for my refinement patients is I have my patients wear the aligners 10 days each. Um, most most of my uh, class two, be it Div 1 or Division 2 patients, as I'm distalizing, um, I'm concentrating mostly on the distalization and the class two correction of the posterior segment and the canines. And most of that, those refinement aligners are usually due to um, alignment in the upper segment and the upper segment, be it uh, and the anterior region, usually two to two, or in the lower anterior segment as well. Um, so movements like that are usually minute. So uh, from experience, I find that 10 days per, per aligner works beautifully well. Now with the class two elastics, protocol wear was 21 hours a day. Again, I started at aligner eight um, until the aligners were in a class one relationship. So that would usually mean up until five or six aligners before last. Once I get to that stage, what I'd like to do is ask my patients to continue wearing the elastics at night time only for eight hours. Now at that point, I may get some resistance from patients. Some of them may say, I've done, I've done my duty, I've gotten this far, um, can I stop completely? I may cave in and say yes, but most patients, there's usually five or six aligners left at this point, which really equals the visit, one more visit, I'll simply ask him to maintain that class one correction or the class two correction by wearing the elastics at night time only. And most of them oblige. So what are the mechanics that I have used, sort of a bit more of the details that I use with Invisalign and elastics, basically the prescription that I write to my technician. Now sequential distalization, again, we're talking about non-growing adults Sequential distalization of upper teeth is built into the aligners. Basically, teeth move back one at a time. Um, using, uh, using elastics or without elastics, this is really a reciprocal anchorage case whereby we're pitting the, se the sevens and the sixes, we're pitting these guys on the back um, against the rest of the arch. And um, while with back molars, with the molars pitted against the anterior segment, most of the work obviously will translate as distalization of the molar, but some of it may, uh, or at least uh, technically, we may lose a bit of anchorage by, pro by proclining the upper anteriors. And to prevent that from happening, um, I would reinforce it with class two elastics at this point, uh, be it bonding buttons or slit in the aligner. And what that will do is will ensure that all the force is really translated to distalizing the molars. I don't want to lose any anchorage. Um, this is a removable appliance, so if patients do slack off and leave the elastics or the aligners out uh, more than they should, then I may risk losing some of that anchorage. So by backing it up with elastics, I'm just putting um, all the, the chances on my side at this point. So elastics are really not the main force behind the distalization. The distalization is prescribed in the aligner, so it's the aligner that does the distalization. Elastics are there to reinforce anchorage and simply prevent anchorage loss, which really means flaring of the anterior teeth. Um, and we can't forget that elastics have actually a bigger effect um, on the lower arch than they do on the upper arch in terms of movement. Uh, they have an effect of protracting the lower uh, alveolar arch, the dentoalveolar arch, uh, completely. And again, um, this is usually a smaller movement on non-growing adults, but 0.5 millimeter, if we manage to get 0.5 millimeter, which is what the average is, um, that certainly helps us with a class two correction. Now, um, 
the other uh, the other thing I would do is I would request mesial out correction or mesial out rotation um, of the upper sixes as I'm distalizing. Again, what I'll do is I'll start this by distalizing the seven, um, and especially if there's a recent extraction of the third molar. Um, if that happened two or three weeks earlier, then the healing process is ongoing. We're not exactly distalizing or pushing that tooth into an extraction socket. Uh, we're not using a coil. We're using a liner that is distalizing the seven by a predetermined distance, namely 0.25 millimeter only. Uh, so we have a lot less resistance from the tooth, from the bone as well, and we're limiting that distalization, and that occurs quite nicely. Truth be told, when I when I start a class two distalization case, I would rather have a patient have the eights in place uh, because a recent extraction I find helps me distalize the sevens a lot better, a lot faster, and in a bit more predictable way. As I distalize the seven, usually halfway, that's when sixes start distalizing at this point. Remember, at this point, I'm reinforcing the anchorage with, with class two elastics, and as space is being created between the six and the seven, I start distalizing the six and request rotation, mesial out rotation of the upper sixes along the palatal root. Uh, most of our class two patients, be it Div one, Division one, or Division two, tend to have a mesial in rotation of the upper sixes. This is just nature's way of helping create a, a better occlusion, better articulation between the upper and the lower teeth. Um, so part of what I do is, as I'm distalizing, rotate the sixes mesial out simultaneously. Um, now, speaking of what I think works well is, I think these aligners simply disclude the upper and the lower teeth to enable that distalization. Um, part of the problem or some of the resistance that we get from distalizing the upper teeth is really the articulation or the occlusion with the lower teeth and having the aligners cover the occlusal surfaces of both the upper and the lower teeth, I find that those teeth, the upper teeth, would, will distalize a lot better in a more predictable way, if you want. Um, and that full coverage not only would it disarticulate and help distalization in the upper arch, but it will also help prevent proclination of the lower incisors. Um, in, in, in a fixed appliance, what we would do is put a, a strong stainless steel wire and cinch it in the back to prevent proclination of the lower anteriors and to splint the lower arch. Um, the aligner uh, covers the occlusal surfaces, the buckle covers really the whole uh, clinical crown um, and all the lower arch. And I find the splinting effect of these aligners is quite wonderful. Again, preventing the proclination of the lower incisors. And the last thing that I find helps is the occlusal coverage of these aligners will also prevent uh, the unwanted extrusion of molars, especially the lower molars, obviously. Um, it, the, the vertical vector of force from the class two elastics can potentially need lead to extrusion of the lower first molars. And I find the occlusal coverage of these aligners will simply prevent the extrusion um, of those molars or at least minimize it. And so, and that's why I find, um, in, in my opinion, having these uh, aligners cover the, the teeth, the occlusal surfaces, and the whole clinical crown on both arches helpful in distalization cases. Now, um, upper molar distalization uh, is done by the aligners. Um, elastics are simply there to reinforce anchorage. What I would do is uh, request or prescribe a mesial out rotation on the upper sixes simultaneously with the distalization. And you notice uh, we distalize the seven. Spaces are being created between the sixes and the, and the sevens. And as we distalize that six, you find that that six stands with interproximal spaces, mesial and distal to it. So at that point, the plastic from the aligner does a better job. It doesn't cover, obviously, the interproximal surfaces completely, but it covers the line angles a little bit better and gets a better grip on that upper sixes. So at that point, it'll be a bit easier to distalize and simultaneously request that mesial out rotation along the palatal root. And again, we might get about a millimeter or so of correction of the class two simply 
by taking that upper mesial buccal cusp and uh, pushing it distally simply via mesial out-rotation. So part of it is mesial out-rotation, part of it is actually distalization, and we may end up with three millimeters or even sometimes four millimeter uh, distalization of the mesial buccal cusp tip on the upper sixes. Now class two elastics, as we've mentioned, um, reinforce anchorage and will give us uh, more lower dental alveolar protraction. As a matter of fact, the effect of class two elastics um, is a lot better on the lower arch than it is on the upper arch. And by that, I mean protraction of the lower dental alveolar complex as it has been documented in the literature. Now, occlusal coverage by the aligners disarticulate the teeth, facilitate the distalization process, and minimizes the negative secondary effects, uh, basically protraction of the lower incisors and extrusion of the lower sixes. Now, the one thing I want to mention is power ridges. That is especially true in class two, division two cases, but there are times we're also using in class two, division one cases. I prescribe power ridges on the upper, upper two to two, on the upper centrals and lateral incisors. Uh, and what that would do is we'll apply lingual root torque and maintain the buccal crown torque where or when necessary. In other words, as I'm distalizing the teeth sequentially, I, dis I distalize the teeth one at a time until I get to the canine. I distalize the canines by themselves. And as I get to the upper anteriors, at that point, I try to retract them en masse. Um, especially in a class two, division two case. What I would wanna do is request power ridges on the upper two to two. And what that will do is will give me lingual root torque as I'm retracting the upper incisors. So you can imagine in a, in a division two case, those upper centrals are tipped lingually to begin with, and we can't tip them anymore. Otherwise, uh, the, aesthetics, we, the aesthetics will be compromised um, as well as the uh, function. Um, so as, as I'm retracting, as space is being created between the upper threes and the twos, that's when I request the power ridges to be applied to those teeth. So retract and apply the lingual uh, power, uh, the power ridges to give you a lingual root torque at the same time. Now, Invisalign, certainly um, Invisalign and elastics can be used for dental correction of class two cases for up to four millimeters, I find clinically. We might have measured on um, up to three millimeter uh, correction in, in most of our patients. I wouldn't push it past four millimeters. I'm comfortable with up to four millimeters. Beyond that, you wanna consider either extraction or surgery at this point. Um, and I find that the treatment time was equivalent or maybe even a bit more comparable uh, to a bit better advantageous to fixed appliances. In other words, in a span of 19 months, we were able to distalize the teeth, but at the same time work on rotation and correction and establishing an occlusion um, in the rest of the arch. Most of our patients that go through uh, the distalization process with fixed appliances, uh, we end up doing usually um, six months of distalization and then go on, uh, place uh, braces and brackets and uh, work on the alignment and so on and so forth. So I find with aligners and elastics, the time is very compar comparable, if not favorable. Now, protraction or mesial movement of the mandibular teeth uh, with class two elastics can be expected, and it's certainly a lot more evident in growing patients. And I'll discuss um, a growing patient in a second. We'll have a sample, and I'll tell you how I do things differently uh, with a growing patient. Um, unlike fixed appliances, class two elastics may be started early in treatment with Invisalign. Now, this is an important point. Uh, the reason I say that is uh, patients are usually, when they start treatment at the beginning of the treatment, we all know our patients are a lot more motivated. Uh, they have the energy, they're determined to get it done. So I wanna take advantage of that energy and that motivation. So I wanna start my class two elastics early on, even at a liner seven or eight, that's still considered early, because compared to fixed appliances, we'll have to wait until we align and level that lower arch and we, we're in a stiffer, stronger wire, before we start class two elastics, which may mean 
six, nine, sometimes 12 months before we start the class do elastics. Uh, whereas with aligners, um, I have a peace of mind knowing that the aligners are splinting the lower arch quite nicely so I can start with a class two elastics early on when I have the patient's compliance and cooperation at its best. Now, aligner wear usually minimizes the side effects uh, of elastics on lower facial height. Granted, there are times where we do want to open up the bite. We do want to rotate the mandible uh, a little bit in a clockwise rotation. But as we know, this can be counterproductive because as we rotate the mandible, that usually worsens the class two case. Um, so you want to obviously do it on a patient by patient, uh, case by case, and decide whether you do want to increase that vertical or not. But if you choose not to, then you can rely, and, and research shows us you can rely on the aligners and the elastics to prevent that from occurring. Now let's look at, at two sample patients from the study. Uh, patient one, 26 years old, 26 and a half years old, his chief complaint is, my bite is off. And you can see right here, he's got um, on, the, on the left hand side, um, he's very close, he's not that far off from a class one. Uh, granted, the canine relationship is, a clo is closer to a class two, the molar is closer to a class one, but there is some distalization required on the left hand side, um, a, lo a lot more on the right hand side. At this point, we need distalization, but we also need to torque those upper incisors. And comparing the final, I always use my canine as a relationship to determine the occlusion or the malocclusion. And at this point, I'm happy with the class one canine relationship. Looking at, at patient one in a little bit more detail, his endong uh, class two on the right-hand side, um, class one left molar, but class two left canine relationship, like we mentioned. So we do require some distalization on the left-hand side, a lot more so on the right-hand side. Now, treatment time took 12 months. We had 26 upper aligners and 11 active lower aligners. Um, no refinement was required. Absolutely no interproximal reduction was required, and he wore class two elastics. Um, now, we started the treatment. I started the treatment in, in 2009. That was prior to G3 and G4. Um, in other words, we, we, we were, I was prescribing the attachments that I wanted to use in there. Um, we didn't have the optimized attachments just yet, uh, but the protocol was otherwise the same. So just going back into IPR, interproximal reduction is something that I do a lot less of nowadays. Um, maybe in 10%, 10 to 15% of my cases at most, and most of the time I use it for Bolton discrepancy, uh, be it in the anterior or the posterior region. Um, if I'm distalizing the, the sevens and the sixes, I may sometimes go in and do some interproximal reduction in the bicuspid region and the upper bicuspid region simply to allow me to distalize the canine into a better class one relationship. In other words, if my molar relationship at the end of the treatment is class two-ish somewhat, um, I'll be willing to live with that. But the canines, I may want to distalize a little bit more than the, than the molars. And then at that point, I may do some interproximal reduction um, in the upper bicuspid region simply to distalize the canines a little bit more. But for the most part, um, I rarely need to do that. Um, and the other thing I would use uh, interproximal reduction for in a class two patient is in the lower bicuspid region. Again, as I'm trying to mesialize uh, the, uh, the lower sixes a little bit more, I'm relying on the uh, protraction uh, effect of the class two elastics but I may do some interproximal reduction from the distal of the lower three to the mesial of the lower six. So not only am I getting dento-alveolar protraction of about 0.5 millimeter, but some more interproximal reduction can help me mesialize that molar another 0.5 millimeter, um, and that can help me get closer to a class one canine relationship or a class two segment uh, relation, posterior segment relationship. Now, in this patient, I didn't use any IPR whatsoever, but when I do use it, it's for that, for these uh, circumstances. So 
So looking at the initial uh, ClinCheck, uh, static photo of the ClinCheck pretreatment, uh, there has been, you can see on the left-hand side, we, did, we had to do some distillization. So if I move you into the post-treatment or the final, you see there is some uh, expansion, uh, some distillization. And again, again, let me go back to the in initial, I'm sorry. Let me go back to the initial. Um, the occlusion was not seated very well on those posterior teeth pre-treatment. We stock in the bite a little bit better with the aligner. We distillize and have a better interdigitation of the posterior segments. Um, looking at the uh, CEF tracing, the Steiner analysis, pre-treatment and post-treatment, let's look at some of the numbers first. Um, that the overjet uh, pre-treatment and post-treatment was 3.4 uh, pre-treatment, so that's a change of about half a centimeter right here. Uh, in terms of overjet reduction. Uh, the molar relationship, again, that's a relationship between the lower and the upper molars, uh, was uh, 1.3 millimeter correction. Um, and again, this is due to protraction, some protraction of the lower molars, but mostly distalization of the upper molars. So that is certainly um, clinically visible, but uh, the trace, uh, the CEF analysis certainly confirmed that. Now let's look at patient two again from the study. Um, I have a heavy bite on my front teeth and I want a nice smile. She certainly with, with the uh, class two, div two, uh, she certainly has a heavy bite on the upper anteriors and you can tell we need to distalize mostly on the left hand side, uh, but the right hand side can certainly benefit as well. Patient two is 32 years old. So like we mentioned, she's class two subdivision left some minor distillization was required on the right-hand side, about a millimeter or so, not much, but most of the distillization required was on the left-hand side. Now her upper and lower midlines coincide. Um, she's got, I requested sequential distillization on the left-hand side, and I used class two elastics on the left-hand side only. Now I wanna to touch up a little bit about class two elastics, be it unilateral or bilateral. In this case, I did something that I don't normally do. Um, if the midline is on, if I'm distalizing, uh, if I'm using distalization on the one side only, if the midline is on, what I like to do is use bilateral class two elastics. Um, even though I'm not requesting much distalization on the class one side, I like to use bilateral elastics to maintain the midline on. If I find that the, mid that the midline needs to be the upper midline needs to shift towards the class two side, I may use a class two elastics on the class two side only. In other words, when the midline is on, I wanna maintain that symmetry, I'll use class two elastics on both sides. If the midline needs to shift towards the class two side, I will most likely request distalization on that side, but I'll also back it up with a class two elastics unilaterally on that side. And I find that helps me center the midline a little bit better and a little bit faster as well. So I broke my own rule in this case. Now treatment took one year and then nine months or one year and 10 months almost. Uh, the initial uh, number of aligners, we have 30 upper and 25 active lower aligners. Again, that was before passive aligners. Um, I had to do uh, some more refinement uh, 23 upper and lower aligners. And again, for refinement, I did 10 days per aligner and that took, that took about seven and a half months in total. So uh, the average a year and nine months or, or a year and 10 months, and then in this case, almost 20 months to get the uh, nice results that we have with a class two correction and torquing the upper incisors as well. And again, this case was done before G3 and G4, um, so precision cuts weren't prescribed just yet, uh, and we, ha we, don't, we didn't have the optimized attachments either. Um, looking at her ClinCheck, static pictures of her ClinCheck initial. Um, again, you can see class two is required. Um, not much on the, on the right-hand side. Uh, I believe we prescribed maybe uh, about half a millimeter to a millimeter just to sock in the occlusion a little bit better on the right-hand side. Uh, we did certainly some expansion. Again, let me go back to the initial 
right here. Uh, we needed to distalize, expand the arch. So if you look at the upper occlusal in particular, pre-treatment, let me go into post-treatment. There's certainly distalization and expansion uh, while maintaining the midline as is. Looking at the uh, Ceph tracing, the Steiner analysis, Again, we'll look at the numbers in a sec, but you can see the uh, overbite and overjet improvement, pre-treatment and post-treatment tracing of the Ceph. And if we look closer in here, the molar relationship, and that's usually uh, on the left-hand side, that's where distalization occurred. Um, that was corrected by one millimeter um, radiographically again. Um, and looking at the overjet, that improved by about 0.5 millimeter. Um, and the overbite, again, that opened up by almost three millimeter. That's mostly due to some intrusion of the lower incisors, leveling of the lower curvus P, um, and certainly uh, some of the protraction of the lower arch, distalization of the upper arch help us with the class two. But intrusion of the lower incisors, maybe some, some proclination as well, all of that. Uh, helped us improve the overbite as well. Now, let me show you a case. We did not want to include teen patients uh, in our study. We wanted growth to be uh, not a contributing factor. But let me show you a, a patient, a growing patient, 16 years old, who wants to fix, fix uh, basically says, I want to fix my teeth. I want a beautiful smile. Um, and you can certainly see how he's class two. Um, on the right-hand side, uh, he has got a peck-shaped lateral incisor on the upper uh, right-hand side. So there was distalization was required to correct the class two and to create space to align that, the canine and the lateral incisors on the right-hand side. And again, looking at the before and after, if you look at the gum level and the, um, the pre-treatment, uh, photos and then in the post-treatment photos, uh, we certainly had to intrude those lower incisors as well, maybe even procline them slightly. So 16 years old, class two uh, subdivision right, uh, peg lateral on the upper right too. It's got a deep overbite, certainly crowding in both arches and a crossbite on that lateral incisor. Treatment time was one year and, and, and 10 months, so 20 months in total. We had 41 upper and lower aligners. Um, I did sequential distalization on this young man, again, to create space to align the canine on the lateral incisors. And then we had to do refinement. Those 11 aligners were mostly to align the upper incisors. Uh, I wanted to tweak them a little bit more. The, align, the alignment wasn't perfect. So those refinement aligners were not to further distalize. They were mostly to align the upper incisors, both upper and lower. Um, and that was done after the initial introduction of optimized attachment, the G3 basically. Initial treatment, again, I requested uh, distal, sequential distalization on the right-hand side and I still had him wear class two elastics. Now the idea behind this is on a growing child uh, that is, does not have much crowding in the upper arch, I would request uh, precision cuts and class two elastics, um, expand the arch, coordinate the upper and the lower arch, and at the end I may request an elastic jump. Basically the elastic jump is simply uh, occurs at the end of the treatment, um, as we know, clinically, that, uh, that occurs um, over the treatment, over the length of the treatment, but on the ClinCheck, it will appear almost like a surgical jump, um, and that simply moves the lower jaw forward. And this is usually due to the effect of the class two elastics, uh, but it's mostly due to growth. Obviously, the class two elastics will help direct the growth. Um, it's not gonna grow the mandible, it's simply gonna help direct the growth. So we take credit for that growth, but we really, uh, all we're doing is redirecting it a little bit with the elastics, so the mandible moves forward um, at the end of the uh, at the end of the ClinCheck, and that has worked very well for me, um, especially in early teen years, 13, 14, 15, no issues, 
16, I may do some uh, distillation, uh, sequential distillation, and um, hope for protraction on the lower arch as well. But in a case like this, I had to do sequential distillation. Let me go back in here again. Sequential distillation, mostly to create space to realign these two teeth. Um, knowing quite well that the class two elastics is also going to help me with the uh, with the um, in the mandibular arch, relying on growth as well. So that would have been um, a bit of gravy at the end, and I'm happy getting that. So whatever I get in terms of growth and class two effects on the lower arch, I did not want to include in the clint check because that will be an added bonus. So initial and final. And uh, looking at the tracing as well, let's look at some of the numbers. Now, the molar relationship, almost three millimeter, three millimeter correction on the left-hand side. Again, this is due, part of it is due to distalization. I believe in this case, a uh, big part of this is due to protraction of the lower uh, sixes due to growth and the effect of the class two elastics. But that certainly has worked uh, quite nicely and quite favorably. If you look at how much the upper six is distalized, the upper six is distalized 1.9. So the difference of 0.1 millimeter, uh, this is due to uh, protraction on the lower six. And we can only assume it's due to the growth uh, that is left in the mandible. Again, overjet improvement. Um, overbite improvement as well. Uh, we talked about intrusion of the lower incisors and some proclination as well, a combination of which that will help us open up the bite anteriorly. Now, looking at uh, the protocol summary, just to summarize things, um, these were all non-growing adults needing four millimeters or less of uh, AP correction, of class two correction. Uh, I did sequential distalization. Once I get even at four millimeter, I may be careful to consider other treatment alternative extractions, maybe a little bit more IPR. Uh, certainly surgery is always my, uh, uh, my top option for non-growing adults. Uh, for growing patients, I use class two elastic simulation. In other words, I use an elastic jump or a bite jump. Um, if there is crowding, just like the patient we looked at, that. 16-year-old uh, patient, if there's crowding uh, as well, I may want to distalize uh, and count on some of that elastic, uh, some of the uh, mandibular growth as well with the class two elastics. Um, and, and as appropriate, in most cases, maybe not all cases, but in most cases, I would want to request upper uh, rotation, uh, mesial out rotation of the upper first molars. Also want to expand the upper arch. Most of our class two patients, be it Div 1 or Div 2, tend to have uh, an arch coordination issue. Obviously, the upper arch will be constricted a little bit, so a bit of expansion that will help us uh, as well, and certainly extract the upper third molars before inserting the first liner. Um, so going in, in, uh, into a bit more detail about the distalization on the protocol, the software does most of it now. It's incorporated into the software when you request either sequential distalization or distalize one tooth at a time. The standard velocity in the, the software is 0.25 millimeter per stage. Um, early on, five, six years ago, I used to work on distalizing either a bit faster, a bit slower, see what works. But I tell you, um, at 0.25 millimeter, which is what the standard velocity is, that I've been getting very good results with that. Now, distalization starts obviously with the second molars, and when they're about halfway distalized, you notice that the, that first molar starts distalizing and rotating. Again, you don't have to request any of that. It's built into the clint check. Uh, it's built into the software. But if you do notice that happen, uh, that the second molar, uh, the, the first molar starts distalizing when the seven is halfway. That's normal. That's how the clint check has been set up, and this is how I've been distalizing uh, most of my class two uh, patients. Now I distalize the canines, and then I'll distalize or retrocline the upper inc uh, incisors simultaneously. So it'll be worthwhile mentioning to your patients, patients that come in with crowding on the upper anterior region, simply explain to them that 
Uh, we'll be working from the back moving forward. Most of the work will happen on the back teeth. You may even notice food getting caught in between your teeth, and I tell them from the get-go, that's a good sign. I like to see that. Keep a floss handy. Uh, floss your teeth in there. Food getting caught in between your back teeth is a good sign. Your anterior teeth, your front teeth won't straighten until at least nine months into the treatment. Um, if for any reason, to digress a bit, if there's any, if for any reason a patient has um, an important social occasion coming up, wedding, so on and so forth, I may align them simultaneously early on, align them slightly, not to perfection, but that would really mean protracting the upper incisors a little bit. So you can imagine in a class two, diff two patient, um, we may want to protract them a little bit and align those incisors just in preparation for that social event, but otherwise I'll just let it be um, and align them all at the end. What that does also from from a psychological point of view, patients are looking forward to aligning the upper anteriors. So long as they're not aligned, uh, they will be motivated to keep wearing the aligners because they want to see those incisors aligned. So that helps, I find, with the motivation a little bit as well. Now, once the canines are in a class one relationship, um, I stop full-time class two elastics and I'll simply ask patients to wear the elastics at nighttime only for eight hours. Um, now, I again, I request buckle crown torque because as I'm retroclining those upper incisors, I don't want to lose much torque in there. Uh, so I'll be distalizing them all the while requesting those power ridges. I don't want to tuck them in, especially in a class two, div two, or even in a class two, div one, whereby the upper incisors are not too protracted, they're not too proclined, I should say, excuse me. If they're not too proclined and I want to maintain the same uh, tip and torque, then what I would do is request the power ridges to maintain that. Um, and we talked about setting expectations for the patients to simply explain to them. Um, this is not a Band-Aid solution. We're trying to do it the proper way. We're creating spaces in the back. And then when enough space has been created, then we can simply align and push the, those upper incisors in. And most patients do appreciate the explanation. Um, normally, and usually what I do, and what, what I do is, and in, this is probably not the ideal patient, but what I'll use is I'll use a vertical attachment on, on one of the molars and a vertical attachment on one of the premolars. Now, in this case, I use um, a horizontal attachment. For whatever reason, maybe a bit more uh, extrusion was required, but generally speaking, I like to place vertical attachments on the molars, uh, one on the premolars. Uh, the bicuspid pit, nowadays, we can use precision cuts with the optimized attachments, so we can leave those optimized attachments in there. Um, I like to limit them to three per quadrant. I find that works beautifully well. Any more than three attachments per quadrant, what ends up happening is the retention of the aligner increases quite a bit. And basically the translation of that is patients will tend to not wear the aligners worrying about removing them. So if after breakfast, they look at their watch, they figure I'm having lunch in about three hours, I might as well leave the aligners out. I don't want to struggle with these aligners that work. So they'll leave them off for a longer period of time simply because they want to avoid struggling with the aligners. So I find three attachments per quadrant works quite nicely, especially with the, with the new aligner material, the LE30. Um, that works beautifully well as well. These, the, the new material will be released um, in the new year, I believe. I've been trying that material for the last couple of years, and that has been working beautifully well. And now, what to do when there's a conflict between optimized attachment and precision cuts? Uh, one option is simply to use vertical attachment. So if I find um, that there's any interference with the type of attachment that we have in here, I may simply go back and use a four millimeter uh, horizontal, uh, vertical attachment. Um, and, or if, the, if it's a teardrop attachment that doesn't interfere, I'll simply leave it alone. But if there's any doubt, I'll simply go in and put a vertical attachment on that upper canine. Um, and just one quick note about when to use hooks and when to use buttons. Now, on the lower arch, I would always bond a button on the lower six. Um, in the upper arch, usually in a class two div one case, I will use the precision cut. Precision cuts built right into the aligner. Um, and whereas in a class two div two patient, what I'll use is I'll bond a button on the upper three. I'll use a plastic or a porcelain button. The reason, the reason for that is 
the 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 vertical force or the uh, oblique force of the elastic is the same as the path of insertion and removal of the aligner in the anterior region with the class 2 diff 2 those incisors are tipped in lingually so they tend to the elastics will tend to dislodge the aligner if you hook them right onto the aligner so to avoid that from happening some of you may notice a space of a millimeter or two in between the central incisors and the aligners and in a class 2 diff 2 case chances are you hook the elastics right onto the aligner so to avoid seeing that space what i'll do is i'll simply bond a button on the tooth and run the elastics on the align uh, from the lower button to the upper button this way the elastic force is not trying to dislodge the aligner. Um, so again, elastics, 21 hours a day. I usually use three and a half ounce of force, which is about 100 grams of force, and three sixteenths uh, of an inch. And whenever the midline is on, I'd like to use upper. Uh, I use uh, right and left bilateral class two elastics. But if the uh, midline, the upper midline is off, then I'll use unilateral class 2 elastics, and I find that helps me center the upper midline with the lower midline a lot better. Um, and expansion, mesial, we talked about that. That uh, I will re uh, Sometimes you may need to request mesial rotation on the upper 7s as well. Uh, more often than not, it's the upper 6s that you'll need them, but if you need them on the upper 7s, I will request that as well. And the last point I want to bring up is an accurate impression is certainly um, extremely important because that's the first step. When you're taking an impression, if you still take PVS impressions, make sure the distal of that seven is captured in the aligner, captured properly. Uh, I've been using a scanner for the last two years, so I'll make sure my girls are scanning the distal of that seven quite nicely. You need that aligner to hug the seven. Um, we're dis this is a first tooth to distalize, so you want to make sure the aligner is hugging the seven quite nicely. So whether you're scanning or using an impression, make sure the distal aspect of that seven is captured in the scan or in the aligner. The other thing is, if a patient has a dual bite, or if the bite is just not quite right, it's a posterior open bite on the one side, and the technicians may have a hard time with that, simply have a patient bite into an articulating paper uh, on, in a dry field, obviously, and then take the occlusal photos. Um, now, these uh, uh, articulating paper, the, the dots on, on the teeth, will certainly help uh, the team in Costa Rica to, to mount the, the uh, teeth and, uh, in a proper position. Uh, it helps them quite a bit. The treat software is a little bit different than the software that we use, which is the ClinCheck. Um, at the other end, where the technicians can actually see the points of contact. So if you're unsure about the, the bite or if you want to build it to a certain bite, it'll be CR or CO or maximum intercuspation, whatever you choose to build the bite to, make sure they bite into the articulating paper into that one bite and then capture the occlusal photos and send them along and send a note maybe to your technician to use the uh, photos with the articulating paper mar marking on those. Uh, and to order precision uh, cuts, you can certainly do that yourself. You can request them um, either whichever aligner, as I said, I request them usually um, on aligner seven or eight, but you can certainly, it's an interactive uh, page and you can go in and place the attachments yourself or the precision cuts yourself. Um, so my final thought here is class 2 correction is mostly to the distalization but not due exclusively to distalization either. A big part of the correction is due to distalization. Uh, um, the other factors are rotation of the upper sixes mesial out. Again, that mesial cusp tip will rotate or will move distally if you're looking at it from the buckle view as you're correcting the rotation mesial out. Um, a bit of arch expansion, that also helps. A bit of protraction of the lower dental alveolar uh, complex. The occlusal coverage also helps quite a bit, uh, sort of separating the upper and the lower uh, posterior teeth. Um, I do occlusal adjustment not only at the end of the treatment, but sometimes in the middle of the treatment. If that plunging cusp on an upper six or seven, um, as we're distalizing, the aligners are covering the teeth, but when, when the patient takes the aligners out to eat, you might find there's a premature contact. There's no harm in going in when the patient comes in, just polishing that a little bit, adjusting the occlusal tip in there, 
and last but not least, patient compliance. Um, I sit down and I talk to my patients, I face them, and I explain to them how important it is to wear these elastics. They're part of the treatment. Uh, they need to be worn regularly for the first half of the treatment or two-thirds of the treatment, um, and we're going to start them early on, but I need the promise that they will be good with the compliance because the alternative really are fixed appliances. Um, that's all I wanted to share with you today. I'm, I'm sure we're going to have some questions uh, that will follow, uh, but at this point, I'll, I'll pass it back to uh, David Moment. Well, thank you, Dr. Dar. Great presentation. I want to cover one quick thing that's very important in order for you to receive your C certificate for this program. Currently on the screen right now, there's a link at www.liontechinstitute.com slash survey. Once you complete your survey, you'll have immediate access to your CE certificate, so please go there after the completion of the program. If you experience any problems with viewing any of the presentation, the archive program will be available one week from today at linetechinstitute.com. Again, I wanted to thank Dr. Dar for, again for a great presentation and for all of you for taking out uh, time of your Friday to join us, and we look forward to seeing you on another Ask the Expert webinar. Thanks very much.